0: welcome to banyan books branches of wisdom celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning branches of wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries we explore spirituality and the human mind ecology and culture most episodes are recorded with a live audience you can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online At banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Very excited today for our special guest, Sharon Salzberg. Before we get to her introduction and welcoming her, Banyan Books acknowledges that although we have people joining us from all over the world for these live streaming events, the physical location of Banyan Books is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Most of Banyan's events and podcasts are free. We welcome your donations to keep these programs accessible for all. Just go ahead and click on the PayPal link in the show description below. Also, a note that towards the end of our conversation today, we will take questions from the live audience. So go ahead and type those in to the comments field on YouTube. Our guest today, really excited, Sharon Salzberg is a meditation pioneer, world-renowned teacher, and New York Times best-selling author. She is among the first to bring mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation to mainstream American culture nearly 50 years ago, inspiring generations of meditation teachers and wellness influencers. A co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, Sharon is the author of 13 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, and now in its second edition and her seminal work, loving kindness. This year, 2023, Sharon has released two new books, Real Life and Finding Your Way, which is a small gift book. Sharon's popular podcast, The Meta Hour, has amassed six million downloads and features interviews with thought leaders from the mindfulness movement and beyond. Today, Sharon Salzberg is with Banyan Books in conversation about the 10th anniversary edition of a book she co-authored with Tenzin Robert Thurman, who we had on this program last year. The book is titled Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier. When people and circumstances upset us, how do we deal with them? Often we feel victimized. We become hurt, angry, and defensive. We end up seeing others as enemies, and when things don't go our way, we become enemies to ourselves. But what if we could move past this pain, anger, and defensiveness? Inspired by Buddhist philosophy, Love Your Enemies teaches us how to break free from the mode of us-versus-them thinking, develop compassion, patience, and love, accept what is beyond our control, and embrace loving-kindness, right speech, and many other core concepts. Of buddhist teachings if you'd like to learn more about today's distinguished guest you can visit her website sharon salzburg.com banyan community join me in a very warm welcome for sharon salzburg hello sharon welcome thanks so much it's really nice to have you here
1: it's really nice to be here be with you all
0: so the book is titled love your enemies. And you write that in the spiritual context, love means to wish for the happiness of someone. And this is what we're encouraging you to do in regards to your enemies. So I'm wondering if we can just start by addressing the possible aversion or resistance many of us might have when it comes to loving people who may have hurt us, as well as maybe those shadowy parts of ourselves we don't want to acknowledge.
1: Well, it's it's obviously a very complex topic, you know, and and it's a meaningful topic, needless to say. I will say that somewhere along the way, the title of the book was going to be "Love Your Enemies; It Will Drive Them Crazy," and I kind of liked that a lot because I was afraid that people would feel, you know, someone was preaching to them or telling them how to live in a way that was demeaning in some way or. Uh, putting down what they were maybe genuinely feeling, which might've been a whole lot of anger uh, towards something or someone. And it wasn't meant to be that way at all because the idea of love isn't, first of all, it's not patronizing. It's not coercive. um, But it has a very certain meaning of honoring the fact that our lives are connected. And within that, realizing that the normal construct which we hold, which is useful, in ordinary terms of self and other and us and them it's just a construct. There's another reality in which is a, we going forth. And if we're trying to solve a problem or work through some terrible situation, getting to that other level might be very instructive, you know, especially if you're on that us them level and it's going nowhere, you know, and it's, it's just fighting. So um, it's examining, what do we mean by love? Or what do we mean by anger? What are the consequences of being lost in certain feelings? Um, what happens when we wish for someone to be happy, not agreeing with them, or not saying, "I'm applauding your actions," or "I think I'll give in," you know, and nothing like that? Uh, you might fight and fight very strongly, but perhaps from a different place within. And certainly, as you went on to say, when we expand the idea of enemy. Um, You know, it's not just those people trying to hurt us or having hurt us. Uh, It's also some states that we may be haunted by and overcome by and uh, don't know how to deal with in, in a better way.
0: And you give these four kinds of enemies that are they're based off of the Tibetan mind transformation teachings. Can you just give us a little bit of context of these, uh, on these Tibetan mind transformation teachings?
1: Yeah, well, this stuff, of course I learned from Bob, you know, uh, my co-author. Um, the first level of enemy or the first kind of enemy is the conventional understanding of enemy. It's that person or that group of people who have set out to hurt us. Who These days we would say, you know, don't feel a person like me should exist. Um, and, and they are... In people's lives, some people's lives, you know, have many people like that, and our systems that seems to just be working against us that don't see us in some way. Uh, the second kind of enemy or level is really the inner enemy, and those are those states. Not that they're wrong to feel or that we need to put ourselves down for feeling them, but when we are lost in anger, when we're overcome by fear, greed, certain states that when we are lost to them, and especially when they lead to action, you know, when they motivate us in our choices and, and decisions really can make our lives very small and burdened. And even I used the word earlier, haunted. We feel trapped because of those states. And again, it's not wrong to feel them uh, but if anything, there's states, when we are lost, them of a lot of suffering, and and so that is another level of enemy. And then there's a third level, which is kind of that construct of a self that uh, is what I was referring to earlier. It's like when we think of ourselves as independent rather than interdependent, all alone, cut off, and assuming we should be in control of everything, when really we're in control of nothing. Um, that very state that the kind of mistaken notion functions as an enemy. And then the fourth kind is a a kind of pervasive self-loathing so that we might not even feel we deserve happiness. One of the kind of basic tenets of loving kindness meditation is the belief that everybody actually wants to be happy, not in a superficial sense of, just seeking pleasure, but really all of us, we want some sense of finding a home somewhere in his body, in his mind, with one another on this planet. We want a sense of belonging and that we're so confused about where to find it. For one thing, we're fed so many lies and distortions and myths that it's easy to to be that confused, to be that ignorant. and And so as one friend of mine put it, it's just that we have bad aim you know, a lot of people feel kind of squeamish about that urge toward happiness. Like, isn't it greed or, or weird, but it's not because if that could be aligned with wisdom instead of with so much ignorance, it would serve like a homing instinct for freedom. and Everything would be a lot better in this world. And so not feeling I don't deserve it. You know, I can't be happy. I can't, or that happiness is a selfish pursuit rather than seeing it as kind of resource building for being able to connect to others in a better more genuine way um that serves as kind of the fourth sort of enemy
0: right okay and we we'll, we can get into each one of those a little more deeply but i first i wanted to ask you that uh in the section at the start of the book where you're saying how to use this book uh you write that regardless of which enemies we're facing the method of overcoming them is the same and I've pulled kind of the quotes and I wonder if we could go through it a little bit. The, the, the method, is that okay? Sure. Okay. So you said first using critical wisdom, we clearly identify the enemy and then we engage mindfulness to experience fully how it operates.
1: Well, I mean, we have to know what we're feeling and that's not automatic, you know, for many of us Um, it wouldn't be unusual, you know, to, be in a state, you know, some, some sort of ill will or, you know, uh, badly tempered moment and you go off to the computer and you type out the email and you press send and maybe 15 minutes later you go, whoops. You know, like I said that was some hostility, didn't I? You know, maybe that's not going to go over so well. And in the early, early days of email, those we of were old enough to remember, um, if you were sending an email to somebody, let's say from AOL as a platform and the recipient of that nasty hostile email was also on, was also on AOL. And it was this magic button you could press called unsend. And it's like something in your computer would reach out and pull it back. And it's like, it never was, but uh, life doesn't give us that many unsend buttons. So we want to know what we're feeling when we're feeling it, not later.
0: When we engage mindfulness to experience fully how the enemy operates, what does that process look like?
1: Well, I'll give you an example of an inner enemy, which is actually my favorite definition of mindfulness, which happened? Um, I read an article in the New York Times many, many years ago about this pilot program, one of the very early programs bringing mindfulness into the classroom. And this was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland, California. So the journalist said to one of the kids who fourth grade would be nine or 10 years old, what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? And he responded by saying mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought that is a great definition of mindfulness because what does it imply? First of all, it implies what we were just talking about knowing you're feeling angry when it's starting to build not after it's escalated It also implies a certain balanced relationship to the anger. If you just fall into it, you're consumed by it. You're overwhelmed by it. You're likely to hit a lot of people in the mouth because life can be really frustrating. But on the other side, if you hate what you're feeling, you're ashamed of it, you're freaked out by it and try to hide it. You try to repress it. You just get tighter and tighter and tighter until you explode. It's just not going to work. So sometimes we say mindfulness like the place in the middle where you can connect fully to what you're experiencing with some interest. Like what is this? What is this feeling? What's it made of? What's its nature rather than I've got to get rid of it, or this is the only thing to ever feel. Right. And so we have space and then in that space that gets created, maybe we see options we didn't see before or creativity can arise. Like, I like to think of that kid in that space thinking "Hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. (laughs) Maybe I'll try this, you know? So one of the problems with mindfulness in this context is that people often assume it makes you passive. Like you're not going to do anything. You're not going to say anything. You're not going to protest. You're not going to take action. And none of that's true, but it's easy to understand where it comes from. It's not a passive state, but it is creating enough space that we can be creative in our action.
0: The next step that you, you give is you say, next we move toward dismantling our adversarial relationship with the enemy by learning to tolerate it and then by developing compassion for it, even as we take decisive action to root it out. There's the action word again. Does tolerance come just from holding it in our awareness? Or does is there more to that, the activity of developing tolerance?
1: Well, there's a kind of equanimity in the tolerance. Like when I described that kid, not falling into it, not pushing it away. You just, you're very centered and present with it. And that is what creates the space. So mindfulness, I think the early, early research into mindfulness um, obviously needed a measure, like how do you tell if someone's growing in mindfulness or, or not. And all of the early measures, as far as I knew, basically just listed being able to identify what you were feeling, like knowing you're feeling angry when you are angry or joyous when you were joyous. And that was all to the good, but I kept thinking, well, you can notice what's going on and loathe it at the same time. And we wouldn't actually call that mindfulness because it's not setting up the relationship to see something more deeply. You're just pushing against it, wanting it to go away. And so that that quality of being present and having that that sort of spaciousness evolve is, is a big component of mindfulness. And it's hard to do with these very difficult feelings, for example, but it's actually the most effective way to see into the heart of them to allow them to be there and yet maybe decide, I'm not gonna take this to heart and take action on it, whatever seems the the correct decision in the moment. And gives us some alternatives because we see more deeply, you know, you might see the loneliness and desire. You see the helplessness in anger. I mean, that's something I often do. It's like I sit, if I'm feeling angry and sit with the feeling, not like, why am I here? And what am I going to do about it? But what is this feeling? It's like, I watch the anger movie. And when I get to the place of helplessness, which I always find as a kind of kernel, that's my signal to channel the energy and do something. It doesn't have to be resolving the problems of the world. Cause it won't be, you know, but something so that I'm not just stewing in, in some state, but I'm actually taking a more positive action.
0: Okay. And, and what kind of decisive action would it be to that leads to rooting it out this inner, this kind of inner enemy?
1: Well, it's, you know, sometimes it's an analysis. Um, sometimes when someone else is behaving really badly, we can sense the pain in them. Sometimes we can't and it's frustrating, you know, cause when we learn to look within ourselves, it's like, we are the laboratory. And I know if I look within myself at a time when I said something, I now regret or didn't say anything at all, which I regret that they see the source in some kind of pain. And so recognizing that, um, and in a way it's, it's almost an assumption. Like I bet that's true for someone else nothing else than they are prizing disconnection and maybe their lives are very small and whatever. And there is a kind of compassion that comes and It's, it's, again, it's tricky because compassion for many people seems weak and sort of frivolous and sentimental. And it's really not, it's actually a superpower. It's a a tremendous source of energy to try to make change. And yet without carrying the, the burden of all that hatred,
0: that reminds me of the the quote you share from the Buddha. Uh, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. You really, po- you really kind of zoned in on the fact that it was very rare for the Buddha to name anything as eternal. And yet he says this is an eternal law. Can you explain a bit about that?
1: Yeah, it was sort of it was kind of quirky, you know, like Mr. Impermanence, you know, cause he talked so much about impermanence uh, saying this is an eternal law. And that was the kind of reflection I did It's sort of like um, in the beginning of uh, isolation with the pandemic. Uh, I I left New York city where I'd been just for a few days and went up to Barry where I have a house and a retreat center, the insight meditation society, which was still open at that point. And I, um, I thought oh, I'll go up there for two weeks and write it out till it's over. So I was up there for a long time. And um, I kept asking myself the question what's still true? Like with so much disruption and upheaval and unknown, like what's still true? And it reminded me in uh, Sanskrit, the word dharma, which is often translated as the Buddhist teaching or the nature of things, the truth of how things are, actually has a meaning of that which supports us, that which sustains us, that which upholds us. And so I thought, okay, what's holding me up? You know, like what's what am I counting on? What can I rely on? What's still true? And I saw the benefits of my own meditation practice. I felt very strongly. We're still true and we're a tremendous support. And I thought of that statement. Over and over again. Because it's the kind of statement. Hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. There's so many situations. Where you think not here really. You know you must be joking. It's impossible. But if I really look deeply in my heart. I think it's true. It's hard to come by. And again it depends on what you mean by love. Which takes a lot of examination. But. I do think it's true in circumstances. It doesn't mean being a people pleaser and giving in or any of that or being complacent, but it's stepping out of certain dynamics that are just kind of endless and repetitive and draining and corrosive. And let's step out and look at things in a different way. And I also, you know, frankly in situations where it makes little sense and people often ask me that you know, how can you be advising that in this situation where this person does hate me and, you know, could harm me if I was not careful. And I'd say, well, do be careful. That's, that's important. But also what I do is I reflect on the fact that they say the Buddha first taught loving kindness meditation as the antidote to fear. So sometimes I ask myself, is this the kind of situation, the dynamic where my being less afraid in any way would be helpful. And I've never come up with a no so far. So I think, oh, maybe it's something to consider.
0: Jumping back now to the these steps, you say, so we've, we've uh, just to refresh, we use critical wisdom. We identify the enemy and we engage it with mindfulness. Then we move to dismantle it by learning to tolerate, develop compassion, take decisive action to root it out. And then you say, finally freed of our enemies, we can relax in the bliss of true happiness and the joy of living harmoniously with others. Now, I wanted to ask, does this bliss of true happiness, does it come automatically as a result of this process every time? Or is it, this this is an ongoing work?
1: (laughs) It's a very Bob phrase, that's why I'm (laughs) laughing. It's like... I don't think I wrote that sentence. <laughs> um, uh, I would say it's an ongoing work, and you know, I wouldn't look for a certain feeling. I think it's beyond feeling in a way. It's it's some feeling of rightness within one's own being. Um, I think that's the point. You know, it's like we feel uh, a quality of of being connected and clear, and uh, you know, the opposite of that, it's like when we have um, a lot of shame about something, you know, and a lot of guilt about something, it's like uh, the energy of that is, is something that is not onward leading, you know, we just feel stuck, and it's a kind of lacerating self-hatred, and uh, it doesn't help us live in a different or better way, whereas if we can uh, take these other steps then first of all, we make very practical decisions. You know, it's not that everything evaporate the common sense evaporates in a haze of love. You know, uh, people often say to me, does this mean I have to go visit that person or have to let them move back in or I have to lend them more money. And I say, no, that's not mandated in the deepening of love and compassion. You know, it's not like a certain action is the necessary and inevitable result, but we use discernment. We, we pay attention. We, we have compassion for ourselves as well as for others. We look at context, you know, we, we really need that kind of discerning wisdom. But at the same time, it's, it's this inner knowing that if this being were happier, they probably wouldn't behave this way the world would be different. Just as like I behave better. There's a beautiful quotation from the Buddha who said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another because harming another is inevitably really harming yourself. And and it's hard. You know, some people are clearly, you know, they look like they're having a fine time hurting other people and and it's very difficult to, to kind of get behind, but you can get behind the realization that, what a thing to devote your life to, you know? And no matter what, we all die and we have to let go of everything. And you know, what would it be like to look back at a lifetime of of, um, discontent and hurting people and dismissing people? It wouldn't be very pleasant. And so there's a kind of compassion, even as we understand we can't take responsibility for someone else's choices.
0: Sharon, you write at the end of the chapter on victory over the outer enemy that when it comes down to it, the outer enemy is a distraction. Focusing on someone who seems to have it in for us allows us to ignore the real enemy, the enemy within. So I wondered if I could just play the devil's advocate for a second here and I'll say, but Sharon, there, there are really people out there who are after me. They're trying to hurt me, steal from me, manipulate, take advantage I can't just pretend that's not happening and just focus on my inner enemies. I'd end up getting hurt. So how do you respond to that in these teachings?
1: I think that's smart. You know, like, again, you know, you need, we need discernment. We need discriminating wisdom. We have to take action. We have to have a balance of maybe compassion for others and compassion for ourselves. And yet, um, if you just take the stress dynamic and recognize that it's a dynamic, that there's the pressure, the incident, the comment, the circumstance, and then there's the resource with which it's met. And we know that from any ordinary day, like maybe you didn't sleep at all last night and you had like a bad conversation with somebody over breakfast. And then you go to work and you overhear a comment and you are so upset by it in contrast to, you had a beautiful night's sleep. You had a totally loving breakfast with all these good friends. You go into work, you hear the same comment and you think, wow, that person's having a bad day. You know, it's a totally different relationship to it, even though you're not saying it's all fine. You know, it's wonderful. Great comment. You still might take steps to uh, change the code of behavior in the office, whatever it might be, but it's not coming from that place of feeling overwhelmed and, um, so caught in circumstance and you know I have a friend who um, would describe himself as kind of obsessive type it's like something happens and he, you know or someone even in the world that he doesn't know behaves badly and he just goes over and over and over you know and he did one of those one day and probably for several days and and he said at the end of that I think it's an aA statement actually he said I let him live rent free in my brain for too long. You know? So if you really look at like the nature of being caught up in those states and how much of our life force they take and energy and we can't change the other person, even though we've gone through the list of their faults 70 billion times, you know? And so that's one of the reasons I really liked that title, you know, uh, Love your enemies, it will drive them crazy. Cause it was like living well is the best revenge. You know, like have a good life and uh pursue happiness in the correct ways and places. We'll actually find it. And it can support you and you can feel connected and uh that sense of belonging and uh that's better than you know, all those vengeful determinations that you can think of all day long and. Um, be happy, you know? And I like to think that of that as both a radical act and as a superpower.
0: I like that you had a, a chapter on forgiveness in the book. It's such a, a broad topic and so many differing points of view and often quite a bit of confusion around forgiveness. I'm just going to share a quote that leads to a question. Uh, you wrote... Forgiveness that is insincere, forced, or premature can be more psychologically damaging than authentic bitterness and rage. Can we just talk a little bit about the nuances of that?
1: Sure. I mean, I think if if we feel, um, well, first I should say some of the most, what I would call the most profound acts of forgiveness I've seen have been in people who refuse to use the word forgiveness because for them, forgiveness means something else, you know, or as my friend, my colleague, Sylvia Borstein would say, forgiveness is not amnesia, but we think it is. Yeah, and I've I've seen people um, in physical pain, uh, in emotional turmoil as a legacy of someone else's actions. And each of those people said something remarkable to me, but then added, but I'll never forgive. You know, one person who was in physical pain from having been in a terrorist attack somewhere. And, uh, I was teaching with a colleague and the colleague gave a talk on forgiveness, which he did not like this person. And he said, you know, I'll never forgive. And then he said, but what I've learned is essential is to learn to stop hating. So I thought, I'll take that, you know, and then uh, in the Holocaust museum in Washington, D.C., one of the last exhibits that I saw, I think it's the last exhibit. It's kind of video testimony of people who survived the Holocaust. And there was a woman who'd been a child in there and lost everybody in her family and, you know, and terrible, terrible, terrible stories. And, and then she ended up coming uh, to the States. She raised a family and she said, uh, I'll never forgive, but I brought up my children to love and not to hate. And I thought that's pretty good too. You know, I'll take that. You don't have to call it forgiveness. And especially if it means something else to you, but, it's, it's not a state that is forced. It's something that sometimes out of, well, love for your children. You don't want them mired in hatred or a love for yourself. You don't want to spend the rest of your days as victimized by someone's action as you were forced into, you know, when you were maybe younger or in another situation. And, you know, it's, it's for freedom's sake that we think about it, but, It has to be the right thinking. Otherwise, you just end up in a battle with yourself. You feel certain things. You don't want to feel them, but yet they're there. And you don't like yourself for it. And and it's just a mess.
0: Both of those people, the stories of both of those people, they had made the choice to not hate and to teach their children not to hate. In the chapter on victory over the inner enemy, which is anger, hatred, fear, other destructive impulses, you wrote... Addiction to a mental habit is subtler than addiction to a physical substance like drugs or alcohol or food or a behavior like gambling or compulsive sex. A mental habit comes to you as an imperative of your own nature, hence it is all the more irresistible. Can we talk a little bit about how these troubling mental emotional states become so addictive?
1: I think there's a variety of ways, you know, one is that uh, we can't imagine being powerful in any other way, you know, like or having control in any other way. Um, you know, one of the uh, things about say a state like anger is that it is strong and has a lot of energy to it. We need that energy. We really do. But when we're consumed by it, when we're overcome by it, then it's got a lot of other consequences and uh the buddhist psychology they talk about anger and this is again being lost in it not just feeling it but being overcome by it as being like a forest fire which burns up its own support and so it may destroy the host may easily destroy the host which is us um and also when we're lost in it in, in a lot of these states we lose a lot of information. It's like, if you think about the last time you were really, really angry at yourself and just bring it up, it's not a state, you know, it's not a time when you think, you know what? I did five great things the same morning that I did that stupid thing. It's like that mm-hmm. stupid thing is all that you are and all that you'll ever be in that state. So we lose a lot of uh, options and creativity and possibilities and, And so on. So what we really want to do is take that energy, capture the energy, but not be subject to all the rest. And I, you know, I've talked to, for example, activists who, um, in the beginning of their decision to, you know, undertake a certain kind of law career, for example, or devote themselves in their, uh, volunteering hours, you know, to a particular cause we're often fueled by tremendous anger and it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to then say to me, but I don't know how to let go of it. I don't know how to dial it down. I see it in my organization. There's so much backbiting. We can't work together. Um, you know, it's just, I'm, I feel so ill. I can't keep going this way and and so on. And so I think these are important things to look at and understand.
0: In a few minutes, folks, we're, for our live audience, we'll be getting to some of your questions for Sharon. And before that, we'll do. A, Sharon will guide us through a little meditative practice. I had one more question for you. Just jumping, the, the secret enemy, our self obsession, our self preoccupation. The te- this this teaching is once we move through that, then there's this super secret enemy, this deep seated self-loathing that keeps us from finding inner freedom and true happiness. That's amazing to me that beneath our self-obsession, there's this deep seated self-loathing. Can you talk about that and how it shows up in our lives?
1: Well, I think it shows up, uh, in a sense of feeling defeated, you know, and marginalized ourselves. It's like probably the, um, one of the most important moments, if not the most important moment in my life was when I was a college student in Buffalo, New York. I did an Asian philosophy class cause there was a philosophy requirement and I just chose that one. I heard a lot more about meditation in the context of that class and thought I really need to learn how to meditate. That would help me a lot. And I looked around Buffalo, New York. I didn't see it anywhere. This is a long time ago. And I decided to create an independent study project and go to India and study meditation. So I presented it to the university and they accepted it. So off I went, and I look back at that moment. Cause I was like, I was a very timid person. I was very frightened. I'd never even been to California and I'm going to go to India, you know, and I would be so much more in the habit of hanging back and thinking, um, I, uh, you know, can't do it, or I need to prepare for like a decade or other people can do it and to move from the periphery right into the center of possibility um, was crucial. And that's, that's what I think it takes. And we so often don't do that. You know, we hang back. I mean, I've been innumerable book signings of mine where somebody will say, you know, could you please sign this book to my cousin? they really need to meditate i can't do it you know but they really could use it uh, you know and in a thousand other ways we exclude ourselves from aspiration or imagining our lives could be different or we could be a lot happier or or whatever it is and so uh, i think that's what what is underlying um so much of not putting something into action
0: You write that ultimately we come to understand that there is no us and them, no separation between self and other, and therefore no enemy. Victory over our enemies is a deep realization of our interdependence. So I'm wondering if you can maybe guide us through a little practice to touch on that interdependence.
1: Great. So, like, interdependence, you know, again, is a a concept or an idea that take some examination. It doesn't mean like it's a soup, you know, ultimately that there's no distinction between people, but that there's connection, there's interconnection. And, um, for as alone as we might feel or cut off as we might feel, the truth is that our lives are intertwined. It's like, uh, when, if I go into a company or an organization to teach, my favorite question is how many other people need to be doing their job? Well, for you to do your job. Well, because in fact, that's what's happening. Uh, and so it's a certain perspective. We can just shine on our lives at different times. Um, looking at a plate of food, you know, how many beings have really been involved in in that arriving on our kitchen table and so on. So I'm going to, we would do just a reflection together. It is actually my favorite reflection and it's, uh, Funny that I was just talking about being in Buffalo because that plays a part in it. So you can sit comfortably, close your eyes or not, however you feel at ease. And just for a few moments, let's think of who all is involved in some way in your listening to this right now. Somebody maybe it's taking care of things so that you can be here or, and or somebody told you about their meditation practice long ago or read you a poem or played you a piece of music. Something happened so that your mind opened in a different way. So who comes to mind? So, when I do this reflection, I always think of the Board of Regents of the state of New York, which gave me a scholarship, which was how I was able to go to college and how I ended up in India through the college. Because you're definitely a part of why I'm here right now. This moment in time, like every moment in time, is a confluence of interactions and conversations and connections and relationships just coming together, flowing together to make this moment. So who comes to mind? And sometimes when I think of who is involved in my being here right now, I think of those people whose actions have really hurt me not just the ones I find annoying but those times in my life when I felt I really needed to find another level of happiness another way of being happy because they're part of my being here right now too You know, we feel so alone sometimes and so isolated from one another. And yet, the truth is that our lives are intertwined. We are part of a much greater whole. And it just takes a little bit of time and reflection in order to actually see that. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Sharon. We've got some, some questions coming in here from the live audience. Um, so here's a, here's a question from Renee who says, thank you so much for your work, Sharon. So helpful. I'm wondering if you could share some of the best questions you have found or used to ask others who are suffering.
1: Questions to ask others who are suffering. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I've never heard that one either. It's pretty great to come up with a different question. Um, I mean, it, it would depend. Of course, it's very contextual. I might just say, Is there something I can do? Uh, But.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. There's an ad from Renee who said, oops, just adding others who are suffering greatly.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes a difference sometimes because I don't know that question would be so much what I would think of right away, you know? Um, Because I kind of think of um, the work of this woman, Kate Baystrup, who's a chaplain for like a park service in Maine. And uh, I quote her story in one of my books and um, she wrote about a time that she was called to sit with a family whose child was missing. They'd gotten lost in the woods. They were later found totally fine, but this was before, you know, that was known. And, and the mom said something to her like, oh, how nice of the park service to send you here to keep us from freaking out. And Kate said something like, they sent me here to be with you while you freak out, you know? So instead of thinking like, how can I intercede in some way? I would just try to establish a kind of presence with somebody, especially someone suffering greatly. Uh, Cause I also believe in seeing what emerges It's like, I know if someone in the dynamic is just helping create a certain space, then sometimes things emerge, uh, even from the person themselves um, that's different because of that space that was then surrounding them, even from outside. And so that would be my first impulse. And then uh, if I was going to ask anything, it would probably be more like, you know, what can I do or, um, you know, something very practical. And, and when I am being practical with somebody, I usually want to find out what kind of support they have. You know, do they are they sort of winging this all alone or are there ways in which uh, we can think of ways they could have some support?
0: Thank you. There's a a question here from Mabel who's referring back to the super secret enemy and says, how do we overcome this sense of self-loathing?
1: You know, I always think of uh, two different approaches and obviously there are many, you know, but um, now I'm thinking of three, but in terms of meditation practice, there, there are kind of two modalities that, I think are really useful. One is mindfulness and that is to be able to be with different states, not afraid of them, uh, not pushing them away, but kind of be in their presence um, in a different way. And that's the evolution of compassion. So it'd be like seeing the self-loathing, not buying into it, you know, but also not hating yourself for it which would be like a double whammy, you know, but uh, recognizing it for what it is. And there are lots of ways. Some people describe it with this acronym of RAIN, R-A-I-N, like recognize, accept, or acknowledge, investigate, like what's in there? Not why is it there? What am I going to do about it? But what is it? You know, what's it made of? Uh, And then not identifying, not sort of jump on the train, you know, like I am this way and always going to be this way. It is, it is what it is, you know, right now. Um, And that will make a big difference. Sometimes we say, if you have like a really caustic, uh, difficult inner critic that comes a lot, give it a name or give it a persona Um, because everything will depend on how you relate to it. So I have named with apologies to any Lucy's that are listening. I've named my own inner critic Lucy based on the character in the Peanuts comic strip. Cause I once I moved into this house, so I was going to do a retreat in and someone had left a cartoon in the desk of the bedroom. I was moving into from the Peanuts comic strip and in the first frame, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> where Charlie Brown says, "What in the world can I do about that?" And she says, "I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem." Somehow, whenever I walk by that desk, my eye would fall—my eye would fall right on the line. Problem with you is that you're you, because that Lucy voice had been so dominant in my earlier life. But this is the role of mindfulness. So something happened. For me, very quickly after I'd seen the cartoon, something great happened. And my very first thought was, it's never going to happen again. And my response to that was, hi, Lucy. My favorite for me, that was, chill out, Lucy. Just chill out. Not like, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. Or I can't believe I've been meditating all these years and Lucy's still here. But like, chill, Lucy. I see you. I don't need to buy into you anymore. So that is a whole evolution of mindfulness and it really works even with very, very difficult and painful states. The other, of course, that I think of is loving kindness meditation, which includes in fact, classically begins with loving kindness for ourselves. It's like we're not left out in utter deference to seeking the happiness of others. Uh, we need to be included in that and that's really hard for a lot of people. Um, but nonetheless, if you're not going to be first, because sometimes it's too hard somewhere in there, you know, to include yourself. And and it actually also makes a huge difference in one's life and and something shifts. Um, And then the third thing, which doesn't have to do with meditation is that came to my mind is actually sometimes learning how to accept is very difficult. Some people are givers. Um, it's much easier to be generous than to receive and paying attention to that. You know, when somebody offers you a compliment, someone thanks you, someone gives you a gift, like many of us, like bridal, you know, like, or uh, you're even in some fantastic situation and you can't take it in, you say, I don't deserve it. Um, notice that resistance and just relax and take it in. And it's almost like reconditioning yourself.
0: There's a question here from Mara and just a, a, a little bit of a trigger warning for some people, because I know this is a very polarized issue right now. Uh, Mara says, could you speak about how you're feeling around the situation with Israel and Gaza and rapidly escalating anti-Semitism in the U.S. and Canada and how you use discernment in this situation?
1: Um it is a very difficult issue. You know, I can't really speak to uh, political aspects of it, Um, but uh, I sort of was very touched by, you know, uh, different people like Uval Harari, who's is Israeli, but lives in London and is a student of Buddhist meditation and Uh, when he basically said, you know, those of us who are involved very personally are too traumatized, too stricken. Someone else needs to keep the flame of peace as a possibility. Someone else needs to uphold that. And that kind of gave me a sense of a path. Um, I I think that's really true. And it, you know, it's not that I don't, uh, follow it or have feelings or, um, I also have history, you know, like I grew up in part with my grandparents and uh, I moved, when my mother died when I was nine, I moved in with my my father's parents and he was long gone. Um, you know, and there was always some cousin around third, with cousin, something like that, who was quite, quite ill, mentally ill. And my uh, grandparents would always say, we well, have to understand they were hiding under the bed when they watched their parents being killed. You have to understand they hid in the closet for four days with no food. You have to understand, you know, so I felt that very acutely, especially in the beginning, but, um, I feel committed in my life to try to not get lost in hatred, whether that's in my self or, you know, uh, to try to be something of that voice of peace and whether it's family or community or whatever. Um, and you know, it's very dismaying to me to see all kinds of hatred, you know, uh, coming through and, and getting exacerbated. Maybe it's no worse, probably it's no worse, but it's certainly highlighted, you know, these days. Um, and I would just urge people to think about being some kind of voice of peace, which again, you know, people think that means being nammy pammy and not caring or not taking a stand and being uh, removed and it really doesn't. Um, but it's having a, a different kind of clarity about things.
0: Thank you, Sharon. I think we have time for one more question. This is from Mary who says, to what degree is the approach to meditation of befriending our minds through loving kindness, a core practice and approach of traditional Buddhism? And how much is it a more recent evolution or emphasis of
1: more recent Western teachers? Well, I like to think it's quite core because uh, my first book was called Loving Kindness. And it was, as far as I know, the first book in English, um, that was describing their practice. And, uh, I think it is, it is sincerely, I believe it's core, but a lot of things are implicit. You know, when I was talking about mindfulness, uh, before and how the earlier measures or earliest measures, as far as I know, we're just based on, do you know that you're feeling angry? Do you know that you're feeling sad? Do you know that you're feeling happy? But not at all reflective of how you feel about what you're experiencing. And that's really a core component of mindfulness. So when we say mindfulness means being with what is without pushing it away, without clinging to it, without numbing out, Um, there's a lot in there. So equanimity you could say is a, secret ingredient of mindfulness. You can't really have mindfulness without some balance. And loving kindness is a secret ingredient in mindfulness because, you know, how do you not judge so harshly? How do you not condemn what you're feeling? How do you not condemn yourself for feeling it? Um, It's not easy. And so I think there was a lot of assumption that and, and people I hear, you know, it's kind of amusing to me because some people are saying, well, don't call it mindfulness. Let's call it kindfulness. Let's call it uh heartfulness. Let's call it loving awareness, which is a big Ramdas um phrase, you know, and you can, or you can call it mindfulness, but understand that loving kindness is a big component. Self-compassion, which you could really say is an innovation of, and uh, in it's expression of, you know, Kristen Neff and, Um, Chris Germer and, you know, Western psychologists, uh, based on loving kindness, based on meta meditation, you know, uh, but if you really look at what happens, let's say you meditate and you do a very classic foundational exercise, like rest your attention on the feeling, the sensations of the breath. It's not usually 18 hours before your mind wanders, you know, it's 10 seconds so, what's the most effective, efficient way of starting over, getting back to the breath? It's not jumping on a train of judgment and demeaning yourself and calling yourself a failure. It's having some self-compassion, being able to let go, being able to start again. Um, it's all in there, but usually in the past, not necessarily that deeply expressed, and maybe that's also because of Western conditioning, because we might need it to be more explicit rather than implicit.
0: Thank you. Now, before we say goodbye, I just want to remind everyone, we've been speaking to the wonderful Sharon Salzberg about the 10th anniversary edition of the book she wrote with uh, Tenzin Robert Thurman called Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier. Of course, that's available at banyan.com or if you go into the store. But Sharon, you also released two other books this year, Finding Your Way and Real Life. Maybe you could just tell our audience a little bit about those and just let everyone know those are available through Banyan Books as well.
1: Uh, So Real Life came out in April and it's about uh, the movement from constriction and feeling trapped to openness and, and freedom. It's a lot of what we were just talking about and especially like how to work with some of those closed in States like the self-loathing in a way that uh, is generative and also how to just open to a greater connection and finding your way is an illustrated gift book. It's the first time I've ever had a, an illustrated book. I didn't do the illustrations, but they're very nice. Um, And that was meant to be, you know, the kind of book that you can hopefully open to just any page. And there's something there. It's a a lot of little pieces about different topics and about finding our way, so.
0: Wonderful, I, I'm looking forward to checking those out. And Sharon, just a huge thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's really an honor to have you here. And and I know so many people in the Banyan community uh, enjoy and appreciate all the work you've done over the years. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.